Good, good, good. All right, well, listen, it is Palm Sunday. Can we all just do that for a second? Can we all just breathe? I guess in a COVID world, we're not supposed to do that, but. You know, oftentimes when we come up on Easter, we're running to Easter, you know? I mean, typically there's all kinds of things happening. I know for a lot of us, preparation for Easter is probably really preparation for spring break. You know, we gotta get those hotels booked and gotta get the plans and we gotta get things mapped out or maybe planning Easter for you is the outfits and the, the gifts and the eggs and all that stuff, which is, which is fine. But I think so often we just, we just run to Easter. And this year, what I really wanted us to do is just to step into Palm Sunday and just stop. And stop and, and realize how important this week is. You know, we call this Holy Week. We call this, this, this week where every single day is one step closer and closer and closer to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then the resurrection, the life. And I don't want us to run past it. I want us to just to take our time in it today. I want us to remember what he did for us. You know, a little bit before Palm Sunday in the Bible, Jesus was in a town called Bethany. And sometime before this, he had done some miracles and done some incredible things. And the people tried to crown him king. And the Bible says that he literally, he literally had to duck. He had to get away from them and he had to run up into the mountains to get away because it wasn't his time yet. They wanted to make him king and it wasn't his time. And a few chapters later in the book of John, we see him going to Bethany and in Bethany, he heals Lazarus. He heals Lazarus. And what Jesus knows in that moment, whenever he heals Lazarus, is that he's beginning a chain reaction that will end in his death on Good Friday. He knows it. He knows that that act is gonna just begin things rolling and unfolding to ultimately get him to Good Friday. But yet Jesus chooses to go into that city and to raise him from the dead, knowing that it's gonna cost him his life. And I thought, I mean, that's what Jesus is still doing today. That's still the decision that he's making is that he's willing to die so that we can have life just like he did for Lazarus. He's willing to die. When Jesus began to walk into the city on Palm Sunday, he knew that he only had one week to live. One week. What do you think you would do with one week to live? I don't know, it's kind of a heavy thought. But like, what would you do with one week to live? You know, we think about bucket list. I don't think you would pull out the bucket list with one week. Like, let's be real. I don't think you'd go skydiving. I don't think you'd go across the world. I don't think you would do that with one week left. I think what you would do is I think you would pull those closest to you, around you. I think you would impart wisdom. I think you would, I think you would pour into the who's of your life, the people of your life. And this is exactly what Jesus did. He took that one week and he did a lot of really important stuff. He imparted so much to his disciples, to us, and I wish I could unpack all of it in just a few minutes, but I can't, so I'm gonna pick a few things. I wanna pick just a couple of things from this week that we could just stop and sit and just think on, some truths. And the first one is this. The first thing I want us to think on is this, is that he didn't come as anyone expected. 
He didn't come as anybody expected. Okay, the way that he showed up was different. Look at this in John 12. It says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your King is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. The word Hosanna there, and you may not know what that word means, but it just simply means save now. So he's coming into the city and everyone, I mean, they're, they're already in town for Passover. So thousands of people show up at the, at the entrance to the city and Jesus is coming in and they're all shouting, save us now. Save us now, why? Because they needed saving. They were under Roman oppression. They were under Roman rule. It was absolutely a horrible way to live the way that they were living. And when they saw Jesus coming in, they thought he raised a man from the dead. This has gotta be the Messiah. This has gotta be him. He's coming to overthrow Rome and change everything. Save us now. And they're shouting this, they're praising him. And actually this Hosanna that they're saying is actually they're quoting a messianic scripture from Psalms. They are calling him Messiah. They are calling him King. They, they know exactly who he is. Look at this in Psalm 118. It says, save now, Hosanna. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. This is palm branches. This is where the palm branches come from. In that day and age, palm branches meant prosperity and blessing and fortune. So they're saying, send it now, send us this prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us now. Look at Rome, look at Caesar, look at the oppression, look at all of this bad stuff that's happening. Get us out of it now. The same group of people, listen to this, the same group of people, five days later, they go from Hosanna to crucify him. Five days later, it's the same group of people saying crucify him. Why? Because he didn't show up how they wanted him to show up. 70 or so years later, when John writes his gospel, he includes this prophecy that Jesus was fulfilling. The crowds didn't see it, they didn't get it, they didn't understand it, but John connects it back to Zechariah who called it. He knew what was gonna happen, he called it, it was a prophecy. As a matter of fact, it was one of over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. But in Zechariah, this is what it said, and John just quoted it. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you riding, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They expected something very, very different. But what they got is a servant on a donkey. See, when a king would come into a city in that day, they, a king would have been riding a war horse, not just an average horse, a war horse, a massive horse. Why? Because they would have been taller, greater, bigger than everyone else in town. They would have come in, think Aladdin, when Prince Ali is coming into the city with the elephants and the peacocks, probably less singing. But think like this massive entourage, this massive thing coming in to declare authority and dominion and power and strength. <laughs> so they didn't, they didn't get a war horse. They didn't even get a regular horse. They didn't even get a donkey. They got the foal of a donkey. Think about that. 
Think about the expectation of the king is coming to overthrow Rome. Riding a little bitty baby donkey? I mean, I I don't mean this disrespectful, but it probably would have been a little comical, a grown man riding a little bitty donkey. I imagine his feet would have been dragging the ground. Like this would have been almost silly and comical. But Jesus is telling them and communicating to them, again, he's fulfilling prophecy that he did not come to overthrow. He came to do something way more important than that. He came to serve, not to be served. Right? He came washing feet, not overthrowing governments. But what I think he was really communicating to them is that they were screaming save now because what they were looking for is a temporary solution and he was providing a permanent solution. And they couldn't see that, right? They were nearsighted. All they could see was get me out of this problem right now. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. There's so, it's such a bigger thing that I'm trying to do. I'm trying to change all future. I'm trying to undo everything. This is so much bigger than this one moment. See, they expected him to do what they wanted him to do, and he didn't do that. He did what they needed him to do. And whenever they, were, whenever, whenever they thought Jesus was gonna do what they wanted him to do, they were giving him palms. Come on, baby, let's do this thing. But the moment Jesus did what they needed him to do, they said, crucify him, and they gave him thorns. They gave him thorns. How often is it that way in our life? Our circumstances, our life, save me now. I don't understand this obstacle, this problem, this wall that I'm hitting. Get me out of this right now. But we can trust Jesus. We can trust and we can say this, that Jesus is exactly who I need him to be. And that's better than who I want him to be. Jesus will always be exactly who I need him to be. And that's so much better than who I want him to be. See, the problem is a lot of us, we serve a Jesus that always does what we want him to do, right? You're not serving Jesus. If that's the case, you're not serving Jesus. You got some genie in a bottle somewhere that's doing exactly what you want. You're not serving Jesus because Jesus is always gonna do what's best for you, what you need, not what you want. And it's not always comfortable and it's not always easy, but that he's thinking long-term. And that's what he's doing in this story. He's, he, this is a long-term permanent solution that the people right then, right there could not understand. He does not come as we expect. He does not come as we want, but he comes as we need. And he's always there for us. The second thing from his last week that I want us to see is this, is that he invites everyone to the table. He invites everyone to the table. Look at this in Matthew 26. It says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, hey, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? Jesus says, as you go into the city, you will see a certain man. Tell him, the teacher says, my time has come and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. I just, this is so funny to me. It almost feels like he's doing a Jedi mind trick. I don't know if anybody else ever reads that, but it's like, he's telling this guy what's gonna happen. And the guy's like, okay, absolutely. Come eat at my house, come on. Right? He says, so the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. Now look at this. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the 12. In this culture, and especially for Jesus, meals around a table were extremely important. 
Not only was he a carpenter, and he probably built a lot of tables, but he did ministry around tables. A lot of what he did, as a matter of fact, his method of doing ministry was oftentimes around a table. Um, several scholars kind of say it this way, that Jesus was always going to a meal at a meal or leaving a meal, right? That's what I'm talking about. Does that excite anybody else? That Jesus loved to eat, right? He loved to sit around a table. He loved to break bread. He loved to be with people. The table for Jesus was a place of ministry. It was a place of discipleship and evangelism. The table was a place of welcome. It was a place of reconciliation. It was a place of joy and happiness. I mean, he was always bringing sinners and saints, Pharisees, tax collectors, like everybody was coming around the table all, like this is what he did. And you and I, we don't fully understand that table culture. Like I think we could probably get little bits and pieces of it. You know, you've had some really important table moments in your life, I'm sure. But this was the culture. I mean, they would sit for hours and not in a hard wooden chair, but lounge very close to the floor. The table was really low. They were sitting on pillows, good food, good friends. I mean, they're just, they're just hanging out spending hours together talking. Now we, you know, you may can think of a few very significant meals in your life that were really big, like maybe a first date. You know, you showed up for that first date and it was just something special that was happening. I, I can remember I, I made a huge mistake with, with Becky and I's first date um, because I chose, um, and this restaurant no longer is open, but it was in Mobile at the time. And it was one of those restaurants where they, <laughs> Where they, where they throw, where, where you throw like the, the peanut shells on the floor. Single dudes, don't do it. Think it through, man, think it through. Because now 18 years later, I regret that. But it was one of those meals that launched our relationship. It began something, it was a special meal. Now I think about the meals that we have with our kids. And it's a family table and we're sitting around a family as a family doing devotions. And, you know, we love to do highs and lows and open up and talk about things. It's, it's meaningful. It's powerful. And now we're doing this new thing on our Sabbath days when we're all together as a family. Becky started doing this iron skillet thing where she does a dessert in an iron skillet. And we all, we all just eat out of this one skillet on the table. It's just, it's amazing. It's memorable. Like we're, we love it. It's this powerful and incredible moment. But in the first century, this was almost every meal. It was an event. It wasn't just eating, it was dining. You know, there's a, there's a difference in eating and dining, right? Where it's an experience and there's, there's time invested. And Jesus is literally having his last Passover meal with his disciples. I mean, this was a special moment. This was an important moment. And he invited his closest friends to come and be a part of this with him. But here's what I want you to see. We just read in Matthew 26 that the 12 were invited. All 12 of them. Jesus literally had a place set for every single disciple. Every name, every one of the, all 12 of those men. And they, and they, they weren't all on one side of the table. <laughs> they were on both sides of the table, right? And they're having conversation. But Jesus had a place for each one of them. And I don't have time to talk through all 12, but my guess is you could find yourself in at least one of the 12. Because when Jesus opened up the table, he invited, he invites the one that loved him. We know of John who loved him so dearly and Jesus loved him. And he always called himself the one that Jesus loved. 
Jesus invited him to the table, but not only that, he also invites the one who doubted him. In just a couple of days, Thomas was going to doubt the Messiah, doubt that he had resurrected from the dead. He was gonna doubt him and yet Jesus invited him to the table. He also invites the one who denied him. Hours later, just a couple of hours later, Jesus knows that Peter is gonna deny him. He's gonna say, I don't even know that man. And yet Jesus invites him to the table. And then of course, he invites the one who would betray him. He invites Judas to the table. Judas had walked with him for three and a half years. He was in his, his group, his circle, his people. He poured into him. He discipled him. He, he gave his life to Judas. He poured everything he could into Judas. And Judas walked with him for three and a half years, and yet he never knew Jesus. He never knew Jesus. But Jesus still invited him to the table. And he came and he said, and I don't know, my guess is you can probably find your story in all four of those and probably in all 12. Because we've all had moments where we've denied him, where we've doubted him, and where we've betrayed him. Our sin, our mistakes, our failures. And yet what I want you to hear today is that he invites you to the table. Not, not even just he invites you to the table. Your name is on a seat at that table. And he is inviting you right in the middle of your pain, right in the middle of your issues, your problems, your sin, your stuff. No matter what you've done in the past and no matter what you will do in the future, he invites you to the table. And that's a reality that on Palm Sunday, we need to allow to sink into our hearts. That I get a spot at the table. I don't deserve it. I haven't done anything to earn it. But me, little old me in South Alabama, thank Jesus Christ put my name on a seat at the table. Thank you, God. Thank you. He invites us all to the table. And then the third thing I want us to remember this week is that he expects us to remember he expects us to do what we're doing today, just stopping, pausing, and remembering. In Matthew 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, drink from it, all of you. This is this is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This word right here, given thanks, is the word Eucharisteo, or the, where we get the, the Eucharist. And it's just simple act of giving thanks. Maybe that's what you grew up calling communion. Maybe it was communion, maybe it was Lord's Supper. But what we're seeing here is this, this moment that they're all sitting at the table, or now at this point, most of them sitting at the table. Judas had already left. And Jesus is telling them what he's about to do. And he's saying from now on, actually, if you look back at every table before this table, every time he sat with people, it was pointing to this table. And every time we as the church of Jesus Christ have sat at a communion table has pointed back to this table 
all of both past and future all comes to this moment. And Jesus says, when you do this, it's not just a symbol, the bread and the cup, it's not just a symbol, it's more than that. The scripture actually says that the presence of Jesus Christ is with us when we take communion. That it's more than just elements. It's more than just an act. It's more than just this quick little thing that we do in church. No, it's deep. It's meaning. Jesus is with us and he's saying, I want you to remember what I did for you. Don't ever let the reality leave you or, or, or become some simple and common thing to understand that what he did for us on Good Friday, giving his life for us, that it's because of Jesus it's because of Jesus that we're no longer enemies with God. And when we take communion or we take the Eucharist, we are remembering that. We are stepping, we are reminded that we are no longer enemies with God. We are reminded that as people, we're no longer divided, we're united. It is reminding us that sinful men betrayed Jesus to death and he died to save sinful men. It is reminding us that no one killed Jesus, but he willingly laid his life down for you and I. He willingly did it. He made the decision to take that step and allow them to take his life for you and I, shed his blood for us. But it's so much more than just remembering. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This word proclaim is pretty easy to understand. Think messenger, honestly, think angel, think herald, you know, hark the herald angel sing. Think this loud proclamation, this shouting, this declaration. That's what Paul's saying, that when you drink from this cup, when you take this bread, when you walk through the, the act of communion, you are proclaiming his death until Jesus Christ comes back. And you know who needs to hear the proclaiming of his death more than anyone else? Yourself. Yourself. You need to be reminded of that as often as possible. And then the rest of the world around you. This simple act, this, this powerfully profound act, it's not just something we go through the motions. It's not just something that we do, but we are proclaiming that because of the death of Jesus Christ, you and I can step into the holy of holies. Because, because the spotless blood of the lamb was spilled for us, we can be friends with God. We can communicate with God. Because of that, we can be one. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven. Without his blood, our sins could not be canceled. But because he willingly went to that cross, our sins can be forgiven. Man, we can never just run into this. But to just sit and just take it in. A little bit later in that chapter of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, before you take communion, examine your heart. Examine your own life. Is there something that you need to repent for, confess? Is there... Is there, is there something to prepare? Is there, what, what needs to happen in your own heart? Because this is not just a little bit of food and a little bit of juice, but it's the death of Jesus Christ. 
So do this, just bow your head, just close your eyes for a second and let's just do that. Let's just examine our own personal heart in this moment. Lord, before I take communion, or before I step into this moment, is there something in me that needs to change? Something I need to repent for or confess? Is there something in me that needs to be dealt with? And then maybe today, maybe you walked in and you don't even know Christ. Maybe you're not a believer. Listen, the Eucharist, the, this communion, these elements, these are for believers. So if you came in today, listen, what I'm, what I'm wanting from you or what I'm, I'm hoping for you is not that you would take communion with us, but it's that you would ask this same question of, of examining your heart. And maybe your step today is to invite Jesus into your heart because it's there that you will experience true communion with God. It's there that you'll experience true communion with brothers and sisters of Christ, this, this faith, this family that we are. It's only there. So if that's you and you came in and you don't know Jesus, I just, I invite you to just pray a simple prayer. Your own words, but just simply ask God to forgive you and ask Jesus to come into your heart and make you new today. And if you decide to do that, we would love to know. Please let us know through a connect card or there'll be a link in the chat just to let us know. But those of us here that are believers that have surrendered and given our heart to Jesus Christ, as we do this, I want you to remember what he did. And I want us to proclaim his death until he comes again. If you're in the room here or at one of the campuses, you'll see there's one of these little cups somewhere, either seat back or underneath your chair. Or maybe if you're at home, maybe hopefully you've already gotten some elements together and if they're not the perfect elements, it's okay. It's okay. The, the important thing here is that we're walking through this together. So get some elements for your family. Everybody go ahead and grab it. And just wait, you can go ahead and take that top layer off if you want to where the bread is, but just don't, don't take the bread yet, just wait. Jesus sat at that table with his disciples and he held up a piece of bread. And he said, this bread represents my body. My body that is broken for you. My body that will be broken so that your body can be put back together. So that you can be healed. His body that was broken so that people could be put back together as one body. So that there could be unity in his body. His body was broken for us. God, we just thank you. Jesus, we thank you that you came willingly to this earth and that you willingly went and allowed your body to be broken, to be whipped, to be nailed to that cross, to, be, to endure the thorns, God, to, to be broken for us. Thank you. So that we could be healed, so that we could be put back together, so that we could experience life. Thank you, Jesus. We do this today in remembrance of you. Before you take the bread, just break it and now take it. Now, if you will, go ahead and peel that next layer to the juice. Jesus held up juice or wine and he said, this represents my blood. The blood that he spilled 
for the remission of our sins. Not a sin that he committed. He was spotless and perfect, yet he was willing to go to the cross and shed his own blood for us. He went through hell, so we didn't have to go through hell. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you willingly allowed your blood to be spilled so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be made new. God, you lived the spotless life that we could never live. God, you lived through the death that we should have lived through for us. And we thank you. Jesus, we thank you that you spilled your blood for us. And we do this in remembrance of you. Let's take the cup. I'm gonna pray one final time, but we're gonna end with a song. And during this song, I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. What do you need to learn? What do you need, what, what's he trying to say today? And maybe you need to sit in your chair, maybe you need to stand, maybe you need to get on your knees. But let's don't run into this week, this holy, holy week. Let's, right here at the outset, let's just pause and let's allow him to speak and let's remember what he did for us. Father, thank you that you sent Jesus, your one and only son to this earth to die for us. And Jesus, thank you that you did it willingly. Willingly, you went to the cross for me. Thank you. God, may we not rush past this past this week and, and miss the importance of what you did for us. Lord, as we sing this song, I just pray that you administer to us. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Guide us and direct us today as we surrender our hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.